the party wanders through the desert after having left the dragon's cave. They're going to head back to their domain. How effective are they being? Welcome to episode 10 of the Order of My Keel campaign diaries. The adventure develops. The party, after leaving Kurlaxir's cave, decides to board a ship near Tokar and make their way back to Nard, to Serbia. They're able to tie Azrak up and manage his transition on their voyage, and everyone begins to study their books that Marcus provided to some people. Others write furiously, like Gus. Marcus and John, when they get into Nard, decide to go directly and check in with Reardon. Reardon gives them a report of all the progress and establishment that he has been building, where Marcus interrupts him. Turns out that Marcus has been having his life ciphered, or siphoned off by Reardon. Reardon very coyly explains that he requires payment for his services. After a little bit of banter, Marcus relents that as long as he's able to get results, he may be able to find a way of providing life force in another way. And that's when they pull out John's dagger, the scimitar that had the life-stealing uh, stones in it. They do a test, and they find that, yes, it's possible for Reardon to receive his payment through this. And so John decides he's going to take those stones and put it into his magic dagger, giving it a life-stealing property. They ask for a report on all the other developments. Reardon lets them know that the money that they've provided will be good because they run into quite a lot of debt. As he built and got a few things in line, he's established a Nard Guard, a rabble of locals who train infrequently, are semi-organized, but are in fact an infantry unit. Uh, but they are not armed with gunpowder, so they are a melee unit only. He also gives them the general laydown of the inn, the Sanguine Dawn Inn. Though he says that Skalik, the uh, owner of the establishment, has got a unique request. He requires, in order for him to be the cover for the spy network, an amendment to the local law that would allow his sister to inherit the inn if he dies. After some discussion about the implications of this and the ability to maintain control, Marcus says that it's a reasonable accommodation and they'll make the change. They can deal with the conservative hardliners later. Um, and so they do. And Marcus starts having reared and established a potential place for them to also study the arcane. And so the party now has a keep being built, partially built, uh, the bill around the Baron's Manor, and then they have an establishment in the Sanguine Dawn Inn that is able to be a front for a spy network that they've been developing. Draki and Elrand decide to go straight to the monastery so they could discuss with uh, Cardinal Morgetti and Ralph. So they go into the main room and they're talking pretty openly, and Persephone tells them that they should head into the more secretive private area so that they could talk openly. It's not good to talk about my keel in the common room of the monastery. So Draki and Elrond follow them in, and they get the rundown of all that's been happening. Persephone talks about uh, her dealings in Lithuania, 
says that this Thaddeus Kazusko is apparently some kind of a monster hunter, used his powers to find her out, hiding amongst all of the normal people in Lithuania. Uh, but she determined that she wasn't the only infernal thing inside the court. There's something infernal there causing trouble. Well, Thaddeus Kazusko, the grandson of the famous human rights activist, um, is not as well received in the Russian court, uh, since his grandfather was a known uh, opponent uh, of the Russian Empire. Um, Ralph then talks and gives a rundown of several of the other places that have been happening. They talk about the growing tensions in the North Sea. Nations are starting to claim underwater boats attack on one another, but he suspects that something's happening in the Faroe Islands, that he may have a contact that could help the party investigate. He thinks that they're connected. After all, the Faroe Islands are in a position to be able to dominate the North Sea. He also mentions he's gotten reports in Nagano, Japan. There was that lockdown by the traditionalists, but an Oni was spotted. He has good word. And so he actually suspects that the traditionalists are not rebelling per se, but that they're trying to keep the evil inside the valley. There's only a small amount of time until the modernists are going to move into the valley and potentially the world will then see all of the fey creatures and demons that are hiding in there. Um, he mentions in Norway, they've lost contact with RMB, but they've not been able to get through. The fjord is so thick that um, they haven't been able to sail ships in and even chip away. So they're trying to do an overland expedition uh, they wouldn't just cross the ice because they were afraid of it breaking, and they were still um, tens of miles away um, from being able to see anything happening. So there should be a land expedition that will be able to make it and uh, try and determine what's happening in RMB. He mentions that if they want information about Switzerland, the Cardinal's the best person to ask since he was the one who was recently there, and almost as if on cue, the Cardinal walks into the secret room. He surveys Draki and Ellerin and asks, are you two the only alive? A question that Ralph and Persephone had asked as they met the two of them. The Cardinal gives him a quick rundown and talks about the civil war amongst the elves. He said that he tried to find a way to resolve it, but he ended up uh, convincing the high elves to simply close the portals between the material plane and the Feywild so that at least the civil war could be contained in the Feywild and the Underdark. The wood elves are claiming a drow assassin has killed their king, and the drow, uh, since a drow was seen running away from the dead king, um, when they tried to pursue, the guards lost the assassin. So it's somewhere around, they're not certain. Uh, the drow are claiming that the wood elves have stolen an artifact, a very powerful artifact that they demand to be returned. Otherwise, they themselves will mobilize for war. Both sides are confident. The wood elves confident that the creatures of Feywild will ultimately support their cause against the evil drow. And the drow always, always believing that they are capable of achieving victory or pushing for war themselves. The High Elves ultimately believe that war amongst the Elves is against the Solendron and want to remain out of it and simply try and negotiate a solution. They're not certain if they're capable of doing that, though. The last part of the party, Gus, Jack, and Azrak, decide to get some ale down in the Sanguine Dawn. They are 
greeted quite warmly by Skalik. Um, and uh, Gus then demands a carcuterie board. Skalik is uncertain, but it basically says he's going to try and cut up some fruits and cheese. Um, Gus then demands that it be put on a slate or a wood. So Scala goes into the kitchen and try and sort that out. Gus then attempts to persuade a young woman sitting in the inn. Despite her interest in Gus's hooter, he is not able to be successful. Ultimately, the party stumbles in on Ralph and uh, stumble comes in. Ralph and Persephone guide them into the Sanguine Dawn's uh, private room. It's pretty clear that Ralph and Persephone are in. They were kind of known to Reardon prior, and so they're aware of the secret uh, front that the establishment serves. Ralph, with the group in hand, relates about he's beginning to suspect something's wrong with the Cardinal. Um, Mainly his suspicion centers around, he doesn't think it's very much in line with Ilmater to, uh, or Ilmater to uh, lock the suffering inside the Feywild and the Prime Material, that he wouldn't try and do something to, to relieve the pain that a war would bring. Um, and so they have a discussion. Ralph says that they shouldn't try and tip the Cardinal's hand, that uh, they should be careful about what they tell him, but that many things they still need to tell him, especially if they suspect he may already know. They reveal the, the party reveals their information about the books from the Vatican. And Ralph says, there's only two things. Either something is wrong with the Cardinal and he's doing something nefarious, in which case he may already know about these books. It's best to let him know. Otherwise, he'll think that you're hiding something from him and that will create suspicion. Or if he really is still good, he may be able to provide a way to help the party. Um, He ultimately concedes that as long as the Cardinal is uh, wielding Filmator's power, it's proof that he is approved. His actions seem to be condoned by Elmater, um, and he's reluctant to go against the gods. Ralph, while not a loyal follower of any of the gods of the triad, doesn't think it's wise to directly oppose them. And so the party moves back to go talk to the cardinal. He confirms the authenticity of the books, and you see how genuinely sad he is that he's not able to stop the civil war in the el- well, amongst the elves. He gives a deep sigh. But as he relates and thinks more about the books, he mentions that the sisters of Siamorphe are the order that are supposed to preserve the vaults. They're normally a sisterhood dedicated to uh, the power of the nobles, but they also are charged with preserving secrets of the Vatican. And so they're the only ones who potentially could have a problem here. He says he doesn't need the books anymore now that they've been released from the Vatican's vaults. It's uncertain uh, that their secrets, whatever they were, could be fully contained. The existence of them enough for him to take back. And he allows the party to maintain possession of the books. And so before they leave, the party returns to Reardon. They have, they're going to end up spending about a week here training 
in the bear in the manor house. And during that time, Draki ends up meeting with a dragonborn ambassador who offers him the ability to buy other um, dragonborn units if that's what he'd like. Um, this dragonborn's name is Rirgwer. Draki also meets with someone who's quite interested in him, uh, Hildwerf, who is uh, a warlock of some kind, uh, tells him that he's quite powerful and uh, has heard a lot about uh, Azarak and is interested in supporting him. Uh, whatever that support Azarak wants him to do, that's what he'll do. He's pledging his service directly to Azarak. And so with that, the party ends up departing for Switzerland to try and find out what's happening with the Civil War. They get directed by the Cardinal to go into the Val Lumezia, a valley deep, very remote within Switzerland. That's where all of, many of the portals between the Feywild and the Prime Material appear and disappear. And so before they're able to get into town, there are four human guards uh, with muskets who tell them that there's the road is shut down, the canton is shut down, no outsiders are allowed to come in. The party decides to show some discretion and not kill these humans. Marcus ends up just walking past them. After having intimidated them of the consequences of attempting to hurt them, the humans just say, go ahead, knowing, though, that they'll eventually report this breach. When they're walking down, they end up meeting a drow female who Marcus introduces as Cedra. Cedra also works for Marcus's patron. She tells the party she can get them into the Feywild and they can go towards Theogonia and the Wood Elves. She's not going to go there personally. Uh, drow would not be welcome in the city of Theogonia. Or she can take them into Menzo Berazian uh, um, if they want to go there. Uh, if they want to go into Menzo Berenzen, then she could take them. Her family has a home there, um, but she doesn't want to stay there for very long. She doesn't get along with her people. So the party ends up deciding they will journey to the City of Spiders, and so Cedra, you know, relates all the competing factions within the City of Spiders, uh, specifically the Matron Mother. There's a, a group of mercenaries, mercenary company, there's the zealot uh, house that has uh, lost the artifact. Her house and is a rising house that was reestablished only a few years previous. And then all the other houses that are jockeying for power, hoping to take control, um, get higher seats on the council, and maybe even unseat the matron mother. Uh, <clears throat> well, they end up entering the city, and they end up picking a tail up while they're at the bazaar who later reveals himself and says that he's a member uh, of the mercenary company and that they should meet with a man named Krilin Hakar. They'll do it in another quarter, private quarter of the city. While they're on their way to the meeting with Krilin Hakar, the party is ambushed by a drow priestess, three drow guards, six... Uh, Drow scouts and two giant spiders. John, at the beginning of battle, steps confidently forward, but takes several arrow shots from the scouts. 
The party then moves slowly, splitting between the rooftops and the street, trying to advance uh, tactically on the Drow's position. And that's when the Priestess of Loth releases her insect plague centered on most. John, in a weakened state from the arrow shots, ends up falling unconscious from the stinging, biting uh, insects. Um, spider webs and arrows end up slowing the party, and John, still inside the insect plague, dies. The party seems to lose their focus, and Marcus tells them that they need to kill the enemy in front of them. So the party pushes forward, focusing their enemy, their actions on the priestess and advancing. Eloran moving forward, slicing heads off of the Drow warrior and cutting another off at the waist. Draki is unleashing his powerful psionic, unleashes a powerful psionic blast on the priestess, ends up dropping her spell of insect plague, and the party continues to advance against the ambush. The priestess, seeing that the battle is lost for her, flees. Azrak, on the ground close, tries to run after, but a spider web from the giant spiders holds him in place. Gus, however, decides that he has had enough. He misty steps forward, transforms into a white, a silver dragon wormling, and flies to pursue. Azrak, only slowed a small amount of time, busts through the webbing, and they run after the drow priestess. The party mops up the rest of the spiders, and the remaining scouts flee. They regroup, because the Gus in dragon form and Azrak are able to knock out the Drow Priestess and they drag her back where uh, male Drow dressed in the same practical armor that the mercenary company Drow was in comes forward and says, please come in. You need to get off of the streets. He then disappears saying that he's going to go clean things up. Marcus pulls out a scroll and pulls John's soul back from wherever it went when it died into John's body, his wounds stitching up. And then their eyes, all the party's eyes, turn on the unconscious evil priestess who ambushed them. So it's time for some DMs thoughts. Uh, as always, I'm going to speak pretty openly. So if players don't want to know what's going on in my head, then uh, you don't have to listen to this section. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, I knew this was going to happen, and I just didn't know of a way of getting around it. And I dislike role-playing the, the various scenes. And I think the party suspected it, so they were trying to, I think, shortcut but there's a lot of exposition. We had to set a bunch of things up. We had a um, we had the establishment of uh, two units, the night guard or the nard guard and the night bolts. We had to establish uh, Reardon's relationship to build all these things and receive all the money. We have the keep that's being developed and the sanguine dawn in as the establishment. Uh, there's a huge slew of followers that came through, right? Rear Gear, the Sapphire Dragonborn um, Ambassador. We had to pull Cedra in. I still haven't been able to pull in Turnip Jumpy Bush and Scorch Juniper, the other tr- two kind of special um, allies for um, the group. 
So those will still have to come. Um, but there's just a lot of exposition. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't know, part of the game is, um, you know, the whole role-playing components in the name of the game. But I, I think it was mostly me telling the players things. And that's a different kind of exposition. And I don't like that. What I probably ought to have done in thinking back is I could have encapsulated all of that in a written format and sent it ahead. So I think if we end up having something else where we have a huge uh, block, I'm going to do that. Partially, that came down to just human weakness. I didn't have enough time to complete all these things. So, um, you know, that's just kind of the way life fundamentally is. Um, I was able to get them to settle in on Switzerland ahead of time so I could focus some of my prep work. Uh, I still wasn't as prepped as I'd like to be, but, you know, I guess that's what DMs were always saying um, until, you know, they've been DMing for like 45 years and then then I guess they're okay. I don't know. Probably not. But um, I actually didn't think they were going to go into uh, Menzo Berenson. I mean, I... I get why they did, and seeing the way that I led them, I feel like they probably thought I was directly leading them there. Um, I didn't want to directly be like, have Cedra be the person who says, you should go do this thing. Um, because I think sometimes that's both unrealistic, and I think it takes away the fun if they think that the DM wants them to be doing one thing or the other. Um I may need to, I, I've left a lot of things open and I feel like I've had a huge series of misses when it comes to that, um, where the party feels like they don't know what they're supposed to do. Um, and I'm like, you could do anything you want, but they don't, I guess, get that or, or we're just not jiving. And I, I'm, I'm responsible for trying to find ways to make sure that we can jive on those things. So whether that's I build stronger rails or something, I don't know. And obviously, Cedro was like, well, I don't think we should go uh, to, uh, I can't guide you directly into, um, you know, the Wood Elf City, the Agonia, because, you know, I'm a Drow. And that, like, made sense to me rationally, uh, but it clearly came across as, ah, the DM doesn't want you to go to this place. We should instead go to this other place. Um I also am trying to learn my lesson. I, I learned a lesson from Curse of Strahd. I had a non-playing character who was too strong, and I had that NPC participate in the mechanics of the battle. So the listeners who remember uh, Father Donovich, um, I ended up, it was a whole miss thing. I misread a spell. It was way more powerful. Uh, they were, he was more powerful than the party, but that kind of takes something away, right? The DM isn't supposed to be the one who saves the day. Uh, it's supposed to be the play, the, the heroes, right? The characters are supposed to do something that saves the day and that allows the players to ultimately have something that shines. And so the trick to being the DM is if you can make that situation, then, you know, uh, you feel great. That's like one of the payoffs as being a DM is when the, the player gets super excited because they did the great thing and they did everything just right and they got the slam dunk. Um, you don't need to be the person doing the slam dunk. If you wanted to slam dunk, you could just do it because you're changing the entire universe. Of course, you could just be like, and then I did this. So look how wonderful I am. So um, I, I've tried learning my lesson from that and I want to keep the NPCs away right because he's just like a level 13 ranger um keep them at least a step further away from 
the rest of at least combat. And if they're in combat, I want them to be fundamentally at a disadvantage or uninterested in directly helping the party in some way. So uh, that was kind of why I, I built Cedra to be like, I'm not going to hang out with you. I will walk you into the city and then I will walk away. Um, and so since I kind of thought they were going to go to the Feywild because it would be easier than trying to go into the Drow city, um, because the Wood Elves would be more accepting of people, I thought. Um, maybe I didn't communicate that. So anyway, um, they end up going to Amenzo Berenson, which is fine, but I hadn't prepped it as much. I knew all the factions and I knew how they were going to compete. And so I reskinned an encounter that I had planned out in the Feywild. And, um, you know, I, I got a bunch of suggestions about how to change things. I think the biggest one that I will continue and take away from it was just standard ranged attacks will be effective. Um, and so I added some ranged attacks with this um, endeavor. Now, really huge DM fail. I miss, I love, I, I misunderstood the attack wall down rule. And really, this is something I should have been paying attention to more. John failed a death save, but then was in an area effect and so took damage. Um, as far as I reread and understand the rules now, he should have taken a second death save, failed death save there, uh, which obviously isn't fun, but it's not fatal. I, for some reason, had him take two because I know that when you take a melee attack, you suffer two failed death saves. And I just, in my head, it was two attacks. So if you get attacked while down, you get a double whammy. That's obviously not what happened and doesn't make any sense. And so I had him die. Ultimately, at the time, I said, and you fail your other death save, character dies. Um, there's certainly a, you know, a bit of air that went out of the room. I ultimately knew Marcus had his scroll of resurrection, even though he didn't tell anyone else in the party that there was that. So I was unconcerned as a DM because uh, the player signaled that he was going to use that tool. Um, I also knew I could use some other tools if need be. Turns out it'll actually be quite good. Um, I have an awesome player who plays uh, John. And so uh, he is using this as a character building and growing moment, which is awesome. Uh, and ultimately that's going to play much better into the larger plot um, so that's good, but it does mean that now all the prep work I had done for most of last session, uh, is going to be fundamentally different because, uh, I was going to have the, the players go after one thing. And now I think it's going to change. Uh, it'll be a little more John centric. So, uh, I think that's good and great. Uh, it just means I'm going to have to do a little more work on that, which is interesting because it's now nine o'clock on Sunday night and we play tomorrow. So, uh, and I have a job. So think something's going to have to give. I don't know. Um, I guess last thing, and I'll mention it to the, the players, there is, a, I would say, a medium amount, uh, yeah, medium, not quite moderate, medium uh, of DM burnout starting to happen. We've had a lot of sessions back to back to back to back, um, and that's been cutting in on my ability just to be a human. Um, I like it, and I'm, it's fun. But it's also just a lot of background work. So, uh, like, for example, I had to use this uh, desert city map because I, I hadn't fully thought about what combat would happen in Menzo Berenzen. So I didn't have a Menzo Berenzen city map to do the fight where they got ambushed on. So 
Um, you know, there's just a bunch of small things like that that I'm not even doing. Uh, what I might suggest to them, and something that is worth considering, if none of them want to run a one-shot, uh, which is fine, I've mentioned some of them, and they, they've mediumly been interested in that, is we could change gears entirely um, and, uh, you know, either take time off and come back into this adventure, or if they're also feeling a little burnout, which I don't know if they are, um, there is an option we can always pursue where there's going to be a... Um, you know, the the party as it stands now, right, was described as the D team, uh, the last ditch random effort uh, of my keel. But who is then that A team? And so in my head, they could build, we could do a, a couple shots or an interesting planescape, um, jumping between the different planes, trying to preserve the seals and dealing with huge plane ending threats um, for some higher level characters. That could be kind of fun, and it would allow um, us to lift the rules that were imposed. Um, I, I think, ultimately, I don't like how I built the world, um, and I shouldn't have imposed the initial player rule that they can't have fun, wacky, uh, magical things, because I knew I was going to rip the, the limits off early. And I'm not satisfied with the way D&D is fundamentally structured and how to port everything over into the 1860s and have them like blend in, right? A good example is Eloran is wearing plate armor and a halberd that is rational in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Clearly no one would like allow that to be happening in the, like some dude walking around in plate armor. And there's only so much reskinning that can happen to make that work without us creating like a, a world where magic still exists so it's kind of like the 1860s but more like people you know a weird hybrid so that there's still people walking around with swords because the swords are magical and have been around for a long time and there's not a need to develop musket fired weapons because they have magic that can fill that need and so gunpowder development never happens but maybe you would still get some level of clockwork and steamwork uh, things i don't know so maybe i have to go back if i ever run this campaign world again and be better about clarifying what that looks like so that we can still have several of these historic things happen um you know which i like you know doing research on the different cantons of switzerland um but also allows me to um fit it in dungeons and dragons better i, I think fundamentally maybe i'm i'm making a square peg go into a round hole. So, um, so those are random DM thoughts. Um, again, it's late. So I'm just trying to get this podcast back out. Um, but yeah, it's awesome and a lot of fun. So I guess I said all those things for the, the burnout is I probably have like five more sessions. We've only done 10 sessions total before I would say, Hey, I actually need to like throw in the towel and reassess, um, uh, but we'll see kind of how everything works out. But because I know that that's coming, I think it's important for me to try and forecast to my players, hey, there may be a couple of weeks where we maybe got to take a week off or we play just some other game. Maybe we just do something else and we still get together uh, and or um, we can look at something else where maybe someone else is running a one-shot. Um, so but we have, we have several weeks. We're going to, I think, close. we're definitely going to close this arc that we're on, right? So the Civil War in Switzerland arc is going to close. Um, 
and the fate of the third seal potentially can be established. Um, and then I may end up saying, okay, well, we're going to need to at least take a little bit of a break so I can get a breather. Um, so anyway, that was a lot of talking. Um, I appreciate your listening and uh, stay safe.